With awards season upon us, it's hard to shake the feeling that our movies and books and TV shows are trying extra hard to tell us something about our current world, especially when they're based on real events. From movies like I, Tanya and The Post to TV series like The Crown and American Crime Story, we are awash in fictional portrayals of what really happened. Truth, they say, is stranger than fiction. But can fiction help get us to the truth? This is Radio Atlantic. Hi, I'm Matt Thompson, executive editor of The Atlantic. Our co-host Jeffrey Goldberg is out gallivanting this week, but we gallivanting. have out gallivanting as always out on the gallivants. But you hear the sonorous tones of my esteemed co-host Alex Wagner. Hello, Alex. Hello, Matt Thompson, my esteemed colleague. <laughs> Hello to you as well, and we have a special treat. Atlantic. Who? Uh, <gasps> I, I'm just going to spoil the news. Atlantic staff writer and also veteran podcaster who you may know mm. oh. from Blank Check with Griffin and David, David Sims. What, what, yeah. what, what? Hi, guys. Is also what with is... us in New York. How are you, David? I'm, I'm very well. I'm glad to gallivant with you. A real podcasting <laughs> pro. It's oh, that's true. right. You're like you're like the 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 Mark Marin of uh, our <laughs> of the Atlantic podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> you're a paleo caster. Uh, who are your guys, Matt? I'm just going <laughs> to stick with the with the Mark Marin thing. It is a pleasure to have you. As today we discuss fiction, the movies, the TV, and what it can tell us about real life. So the other day. The Atlantic published a piece by our staff writer, Connor Friedersdorf, who we will hear from briefly in the second half of today's episode. And Connor made this argument that in this moment when the truth is bitterly contested, that fiction presents an opportunity, allowing us to step into another person's perspective, to imagine someone else's experience. And I don't know whether I'm imagining this, but it seems like we are actually in something of a golden age of fictional storytelling, whether you're talking about text or cinema or television that is based on reality. So we've got sumptuous prestige series like The Crown and American Crime Story that are based on true events. And I think because television has such length to digest these stories, the movies seem to be upping their game. Movies like I, Tanya and The Post and The Big Sick. Um, and so our discussion in two parts. First, what lessons are contained in our recent spate of based on a true story films and novels and television shows? And in the second half, to go specifically to Connor's argument, what possibilities lie in fiction for exploring difficult subjects such as Me Too? David. David. Hi. Oh, boy. You have watched everything on a screen. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> maybe ever. overstating it. That's sure, you've watched every movie ever, David. Every movie. So let's right. begin there. And yes, um, am I am I right? Do I sense a recent upping in the game of based on a true story stuff? I mean, Hollywood's always loved a true story since its golden age. What I think there's been an upping of is the kind of material you're talking about with a movie like I Tanya, say. That uh, is 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 exploring like the fungible space in between fact and fiction, right? Mm -hmm. Like rather than the uh, traditional biopic, your 
even like, you know, think back like to Oscar winners prior, like A Beautiful Mind, your inspirational true story. You're, oh, I can't believe it. You know, my left foot, he wrote a whole novel with his foot. Or, <laughs> it's been a while since I saw that one. Um, <laughs> That's one from the vault. Uh, is these, these movies that are like, what is truth? Like, can we even uh, really uh, declare what Tanya Harding did? Like, you know, or... With it, with any kind of uh, surety, like, or or is it more interesting to wrestle with like how we perceive celebrity or how we perceive heroism in a Hollywood context and also in a real context and what's in between all of that, right? I yeah, that you make it sound so. That's a really interesting take on what we're doing here because right. you seem to think that it's about the sort of florid inner life of of figures from reality and history some of that but i i i guess maybe because i'm known to be a curmudgeon on this show that's not true at all <laughs> that's but not true. Uh, i assumed that we were seeing what felt like more fact-based uh, plot lines because hollywood is just wildly unimaginative well there's there's that that's always been true i guess and, i mean that, that there's an argument for that that uh if that, you're gonna make a non-franchise non-superhero movie Base it on real events that there it, better be some kind of a name, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, that you can pin it to. Yeah, well, and it's safer, right? Like, oh, sure. everybody knows who Tanya Harding is, therefore, people will go see this movie. Whereas, if we just made a movie about a crazy figure skater, that would be Black Swan. No, if we just that was about ballerinas. It was about they're, ballerinas. They're the same but I'd, in my I'd imagination. See like a black swan. <laughs> but you know what ice. I mean. Like if, if if someone said, "I want the inner, like the inner sort of mental, um, the machinations of of a queen of a queen in the mid nineteen fifties." You're saying you want that fictionalized? No, I'm just saying if you pitched it as such, like would. Would someone greenlight it? But when you say it's it's about it's about Queen Elizabeth. Hang on, let, but let me tell you something else. It's all true. Yeah, right? like exactly. That's part of the pitch. Well, exactly. and, and part of what I'm wondering about is how TV has changed the game on this mm. type of story. So the biopic, the knock on the biopic, is that to condense, even if you're focusing on a pivotal moment in someone's life, uh, biopics have to take a a very familiar template to a person's life story, right? And so all the beats tend to be samey-samey. You know that at some point you're going to have the rise, training montage, moment of mm. adversity, the um, the fight back, <laughs> um, back to the peak, and, you know, some one to grow on lesson at the outset. <laughs> at the outcome. Um, we are very used to biopics, but we're not used to things that take the shape of the crown where we are diving into all of these tiny moments um, in a manner that allows us the space to really kind of unpack this person's fictionally imagined real experience. Um, the crown is wild when you think about it from that. But like the, the queen is still alive. Yeah. And we are. Yes. That's wild into, in and of itself. Yeah. Well, sure. It's been a long time. That, yes, that we are digging into her emotional life. Right. Uh, not, I mean, obviously, also, the crown takes stock of Britain's political upheaval and the decline of the empire and all that stuff. But that you'll also have main storylines about the queen's relationship with her husband, who she's still married to. Yep. And that that's, you know being dramatized for our soapy entertainment and, as we and, eat our popcorn. And for her, uh, yeah. I mean, entertainment, presumably, I would love to know if I'd Queen love to know Elizabeth if she watches, watches it. it. Oh, but I would, to your point, Matt, I wonder if 
there's space carved out to do a show like The Crown. I mean, when I watched The Crown, my immediate thought was, this TV series would not exist without Mad Men. And it wouldn't have existed without The Sopranos. Mm -hmm. That the sort of like high caliber fiction serials that were developed almost opened up space to treat nonfiction in a really stylized, atmospheric fictiony kind of way, right? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe? And not, you know, I got, got to throw, throw a shout out to Downton Abbey too, but also American Crime Story, which is less well, right. prestige, yeah. but certainly has that kind of rich, it's a little bit more Shondaland than Mad Men land. <laughs> um, than yeah. Matthew Weiner. Um, Matthew but, Weiner land, yeah. I don't know. I, does, I would is there say... A Sure. Uh, There's a Romanoff series coming out from Matthew Weiner. There we go. He's dipping back into fact, and I'm sure it will be done in a way that's the sumptuous fictional treatment. For sure. And again, we'll look at a larger state of upheaval, like, you know, in in Russian society. And like the OJ series, American Crime Story, uh, People versus OJ Simpson, that's certainly, that's a model that the crown, I'm sure, is glomming onto a little bit because- you have all this rich public drama mm-hmm. that everyone remembers, you know, in some form or another. And then you have this uh, juicy private drama that no one maybe knows about or yeah. that you can flesh out or you can dramatize in these fascinating ways. And that's so uh, much fun to watch in like like you're watching an episode of Scandal. Yeah, I think what. But I, can I can I propose something though? Go yes. ahead, go ahead. No, no, no. Okay. you propose something, Alex. I, I, well, right. I'm going to propose something that is a little bit perhaps controversial, which is I'll invoke um, the great White House senior advisor Kellyanne Conway. Mm. Alternative facts. Mm. When we take heretofore widely accepted factual events. Tanya Harding, the fact that Nancy Kerrigan's kneecaps, well, that Nancy Kerrigan was kneecapped. She was. And we revisit that story from a distinctly different perspective. We offer alternative facts to the storyline that shed main characters in totally different lights. Does it not create... I'm really getting to like a Brown senior thesis here, but um, it's okay because I went to Brown University. Um, does we just it, call those hot takes. <laughs> does it not serve to undermine like what we all popularly accept as what happened, right? I mean, American Crime Story, in a way, it didn't suggest that OJ wasn't guilty, but it offers different. Pr- I mean, it just. It, it never had of, a scene of him committing the crime. Yeah. I would argue that Ezra Edelman's documentary well, that's the other thing. was much more, I mean, I actually thought it, it, it sort of shed light on what happened. And I think each time we do this, you kind of perhaps open the door, and I'm not saying more information is necessarily bad information, but it does potentially open the door to revisiting sort of settled ideas about what happened. And is that a, is that a good thing? So I've got a counter argument to it. And it's based somewhat on The Crown, which is that what good fiction does is it allows us to sink into someone's experience and to imagine it really richly, to really think about what in this person's life and context might cause them to take this set of actions. And imagining real individuals as fiction means that you are kind of situated in their world in a way that 
uh, that that creates a kind of empathy that we can lack when we're just viewing characters distilled to a kind of reality show paradigm on our screen. Um, for Queen Elizabeth, who it just exists in this world that's so far apart from the daily life of any average person, the crown, I think that the one of the fascinating things about it and one of actually the really enjoyable parts of getting to watch the narrative is really imagining what is this life? What would yeah. it what would I do if I had the responsibility of this crown weighing on my head? It's heavy heavy as the mm-hmm. heavy as the head. Heavy as the head. But it really makes that vivid and you see the trait the stakes and the trade-offs. David, do you have a, a, a stake in this argument? Do you have a position well, in this argument? Yeah, I mean, I think I want to draft off this a little bit with the, I mean the, what's interesting, you mentioned the OJ documentary is that there are so many of these parallels, uh, parallel series, I guess. You know, with the OJ, we, ha- we, were, we were enjoying the Ezra Edelman's documentary just, what, a couple months after we were enjoying American Crime Story. Uh, I, Tanya is coming just a couple years after that 30 for 30 about Tar- Tanya Harding that sort of reopened the case in a nonfiction way. And the queen, her whole existence has always, the whole appeal of it, I think, well, part of the appeal of it has been that it's shrouded away and that no one can understand it. And just, I just watched just the other day that interview she did where she was talking about how she felt on the day that she was crowned, like uh, talking about her emotions in a way that is very unusual for the royal family. And it feels like there's this openness there that is being mirrored in our fiction. And mm. and I think what you're saying about that openness, Matt, is is the central core of the appeal of all these things, is that peek behind a curtain. Yeah. And also, I think, the empathy that's in it. I want to um, sure. shout out a story um, written by one of my favorites, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Um, in 2016, um, during the U.S. presidential and the run-up to the U.S. presidential election, it was called The Arrangements, and it was published in the New York Times um, book review. Um, It was a story that was imagining the perspective of Melania Trump during the campaign. And Adichie, Chimamanda Adichie brought all of her writerly gifts to actually trying to imagine what her life might be like. What I really liked about that story is she she didn't just treat it as an exercise. It's not just an effort to score partisan points. It's really an effort to kind of sink into what in her mind is a character's perspective and to imagine a world. It's probably not even close to the real world of Melania Trump's life, but it gives you a sense of what that life might encompass. I want to quote just a passage from that story. Quote, and this is again from Melania's perspective, uh, but written in the third person. Quote, being in the news brought Donald the closest he could be to contentment. He would never be a truly content person. She knew this because of that primal restlessness that thrummed in him, the compulsion to prove something to himself that he feared he never would. It moved her, made her feel protective, even the way he nursed his grudges almost lovingly, unleashing in great deal slights from 20 years ago, made her protective of him. She often felt, despite the age gap of more than two decades, that she was older than Donald. You know, that's a very provocative essay to read, Matt, because I think there are some people who would say every 
human being at some point, there there is some amount of empathy we can find in any human story, right? Whether it's trauma visited upon someone in childhood that lends to terrible decision-making and behavior later, or, you know, an, any number of, of things that happen. It's and, what almost all fiction is looking for. Right? right? Is like, for you, that. you can find that in right. someone. And I think there are some folks who would say, I'm not necessarily one of them, though. That's a form of apologism, right? Here's a way of presenting an otherwise despotic person. And I'm not saying that, nor am I saying that Donald Trump is despotic, but someone who is highly controversial in a way that humanizes him and makes him more palatable and therefore excuses some of what some people would say are egregious missteps. Um, another thing that occurs to me, I, it, you can say that, or you could also say that it's sometimes it can feel too simple. It's like, yeah. oh, here I've found the thing we haven't realized, which is blah, right? Like this, this private thing. And that, that helps explain everything and make mm-hmm. you feel better about why does this person behave this way in public? I mean, I, Tanya is definitely a movie that's trying to do that where it's, you know, well, here's the real story and here's the hidden pain and here's, uh, here's some sort of maybe too simple, too neat explanations for why someone maybe was wrapped up in something so horrifying. A plot to kneecap (laughs) America's sweetheart. Well, I think another thing that fiction like Itania does, and I would argue that 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 Chimamanda Adichie story did, is to reshape, and you said this before, David, but uh, I want to reinforce it, to reshape how we think about someone who, about whom the narrative of their life is somewhat settled. Um, Sarah Marshall had written this story for The Believer a few years ago about Tanya Harding, Marsha Clark, Anita Hill, and Monica Lewinsky that was about how the news presented made a character out of each of these women in the 90s and how that character was such a reductive presentation of who each of these women really was. And I think Aitanya was very much a reconsideration <laughs> of that story. These stories now, a story like Aitanya at this moment in the news cycle, it kind of – it has this question embedded in it. What else And there's are we a Lewinsky getting? show coming up, right? Like isn't there some Lewinsky uh, – she, it's high show. time for the I, revisitation I of the Lewinsky scandal, okay. although we're, you know, or the Clinton scandal, as as sure. it perhaps it more aptly is, is or should be called the Anita Hill story. I mean, yeah, right. Then there was or confirmation. the Clarence Thomas. Sure. Right. <laughs> Our colleague Julie Beck actually mentioned the rush to judgment that attached to some of these figures at the time. I Tanya also made me think about Monica Lewinsky. Their their scandals were kind of contemporary, you know, like within a few years of each other, I think. And it just truly was extremely recently, like how willing we were to just absolutely throw these women under the bus and make them the face of a scandal that they were not actually central to. Like, obviously, the situations are a little bit different, but... For example, like now, you know, Bill Clinton was focused on at the time, but now he's like a lovable grandpa who plays with balloons at the DNC. And people are just now starting to question like, hmm, maybe we treated Monica Lewinsky unfairly at the time. And now, you know, whether they treated Tanya Harding unfairly at the time because she was really the face of of the incident. I don't know how many people really knew like the name Jeff Galuli, which was her ex-husband who ordered the hit or the name of the guy who actually did it. It was all Tanya Harding, Tanya Harding. And it just makes you think about how these stories kind of get distilled over time. And we 
sort of suck all the nuance and the the uncertainties and the unknowns out of them. As Julie points out, we have a tendency of really quickly embracing a narrative, and that has often been to the detriment of women. It's interesting that you brought up women, Matt, because inherent in all of this is a kind of gender critique, which is we often box women into these archetypes and uh, we rarely look at their interior life and or we do we see them as multivalent complicated characters and there seems to be like a dawning awareness that oh maybe women women aren't just um you know objects of desire and sidekicks best friends and wives but are sort of lead characters in their own right i mean that's what's so interesting about the crown too. yes I, to that point i, I want to shout out sophie gilbert's uh season two review of the crown so peter morgan who uh, is the showrunner for the crown that's right david isn't it? <laughs> yes it is and he really is the grandfather not but he's done a lot this is this is the world he lives in because he wrote frost nixon as well he writes a lot of these things that dig into the story behind the story. Right. right? And uh, Sophie, to quote Sophie, she she writes, quote, in interviews, he's described his subject, that is Queen Elizabeth, as a, quote, countryside woman of limited intelligence, end quote. But that's Elizabeth Windsor he seems to be describing. Elizabeth Regina, as the show attests, has transcended those human origins to become something greater and something much harder to dismiss. And that's the end of Sophie's quote. Uh, but, But part of the story that Sophie reads into the crown is the way that um, that Elizabeth, despite her kind of narrow upbringing, her narrow monarchical upbringing, um, is this this incredibly intuitively intelligent character in the show, who uh, has a different sort of book learning than the prime ministers who come to greet her in Buckingham Palace, but can go toe-to-toe with each of them in a very on a very different set of terms, that her intelligence might not be one that society has conventionally recognized as intelligence, but it is fierce. Do you think the truth matters in something like The Crown? There are moments where there are invented characters, sure. and I think uh, Sophie points this out, or maybe you do. I you think it's Sophie. Well, I, I read about the first. I'll give you think. credit for it because yeah, you're sitting me. in front no, of me. Sophie's but, genius. but um, <laughs> you know, there's a scene where Winston Churchill's secretary is killed by a, an errant sure, bus. The, that yes, ne- during that the peat fog. Yes, exactly. That never actually happened. And no. I guess as we think about these series as reframing. Fact, f- factual, real-life characters, does it matter if events or aspects of their lives never happened or are completely fictionalized? What do you guys think? No, because this is, again, something that Hollywood has done for 100 years and people have done for longer, where, you know, you, you, you there's nothing unusual about taking a narrative shortcut to get to whatever point it is you're trying to make, right? But it can go too far, you can get in trouble. That's happened with Itania. We keep coming. I keep coming. I keep bringing us back to Itania, where people will be like, "Well, hang on a second. You've admitted something." I feel like I guess there's a difference between admitting something crucial that feels crucial to people and cutting a corner to you know get get to get an the narrative point. to where it needs to be. Right. Um, and I, I just like the fact that we're talking about fiction that's about Melania Trump about the queen i immediately thought of that curtis sittenfeld novel american wife which i yes. read whenever the, i read it laura as bush, well you know a laura bush type we are fascinated by these uh ceremonial like mother hostess figures you know who 
Women uh, behind the scenes. Are women behind the scenes that, as you know, especially in The Crown, where it's like, well, these are political actors too. And there is much more than, you know, perhaps a hundred years of patriarchal, uh, yeah. uh, what's the iconography has suggested to these roles. Perhaps more so than, I mean, the crown really throws that into sharp relief because she is the regent as opposed right. to as the opposed first to lady, Phil. right? Yeah. I oh, mean, sure, how many, right. how many, you know, there's the King's speech there. We, mm. we know well the story of Edward's abdication and Wallace Simpson and the, you know, the King's ascension to the throne, but so little about someone who has been on the throne as is she the longest serving monarch she is yeah she'd be victoria longest serving monarch and mm-hmm. I, I also think actually one of the things about this moment is that facts are so contested facts and truth are incredibly contested i think part of what things like the crown and i Tanya derive their power from is that they don't purport to be Anything other than fiction that in fact the crown is both it it goes to some lengths to try to establish what is true about the stories that it tells. But it's kind of unapologetically fictional. I think Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's story about Melania Trump has the same character. It's like these things are precisely because they don't claim to be the real thing. They are just asking that gives you a sense of what the real thing might be. I think there's some power in that in this moment when facts are <laughs> very. So often you prefer your alternative facts. I think you're right. I think <laughs> that I mean because I think anytime if someone came to Peter Morgan and said, "Well, wait a second, that's not how that went down," or like, well, "Wait a second, there's no proof that you know Philip had an affair or anything," he would be like, "Oh no, I know, but you know, this yeah. is drama. I'm creating drama yeah, and like, yeah." <laughs> right, um, exactly. I hope in the second half of our conversation, as we turn to the possibilities of fiction for venturing into difficult territory. We talk a little bit about Saturday Night Live, our Let's talk about recurring it. weekly series of fiction that touches on real life. now joined by Atlantic staff writer and Radio Atlantic semi-regular Megan Garber. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello. <laughs> and I wanted to kick this part of the conversation off. So, Megan, we've just been talking about uh, fact and fiction, mm. <laughs> fiction that blurs the lines. And I wanted to come back to an argument made by our colleague Connor Friedersdorf. We asked him to tell us how he feels about the role of of fiction in a moment when we have a lot of uncomfortable conversations, most notably related to matters like Me Too. Here's what he said. The longer that the Me Too moment lasts, the more people are having this understandable impulse to talk not just about egregious cases of sexual assault or workplace harassment, um, but these other encounters where the behavior of men to women is maybe insensitive to their dignity, um, but all dealing with gray areas. And there's a belief that things will never change unless we talk about these moments. Uh, but the gray areas of sexual encounters that turn out to be really hard to discuss because most people feel as though when they hook up with someone or enter into a sexual relationship, what happens within that sphere is private. And this is where fiction is really useful and I think underutilized. In fiction, there's no need for 
bravery to share an uncomfortable story uh, rooted in your personal experience. There's no need to protect the privacy of others. And, you know, a fictional story like Cat Person, which The New Yorker recently published, we hear about this older man hooking up with a younger woman, and afterwards we can discuss every nuance of their interactions. Whereas in a nonfiction account like that anonymous story written about Aziz Ansari, you know, many people never get around to learning from the gray areas of their interaction because the debate is so focused on whether his date should have come forward, whether she was unfair to a public figure by sharing all these private details. Um, So I think if the Me Too moment is going to transcend these most unambiguous cases of misconduct and delve into the grayest areas of human relations uh, where changing any norm is going to be sharply contested no matter what, maybe naming and shaming famous individuals for real-life encounters is just doomed to fail. Um, But I think with personal accounts of these ambiguous edge cases that don't breach anyone's anonymity, um, you can have fictional characters that are presented in full. You can have every wrinkle of consent norms that are discussed with a lot less backlash and uh, maybe without any real substantive loss, too. So I'm curious <laughs> whether uh, I'm curious whether you'll accept Connor's premise. Does fiction allow us to talk about the real life uncomfortable with less uh, worry? Uh, Megan, you've also written about Cat Person. I'm particularly curious yeah. for your thoughts on that. No, I think it's such a good point Connor made. I, I think – I'm sort of torn on it because on the one hand, I was nodding my head to everything Connor said there. Um, and I think it's very true. We want to try to, you know, decontextualize, I think, these stories to some extent as much as we can to really get at sort of the the human truth of it, right? So, you know, to take it away from individual people and, and that kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, I think we have this tendency to sort of think of fiction as a realm separate from our own, you know, where it's fiction so it doesn't have to really directly and urgently relate to our lives. You know, fairy tales, they're just fairy tales. It's fine. So I think there is something um, profoundly important about sort of doing that very intentional blend of fiction and fact when we talk about this. So we can sort of, you know, have the sort of more theoretical ideas that fiction would call forward, as Connor said. But I think also we have to sort of uh, have those discussions with a very real sense of, you know, these are, these are, real lives, these are, you know, these are ultimately going to come back to the human truths. Yeah. Megan, you, you use the word urgent, and that's like what I scribbled down on my <laughs> on my sheet of paper with I many... I drew a cat person. Yeah, David drew a cat person. <laughs> Shows you where our minds are at. Um, but I do, I mean, I think I, I really agree that part of the thing with fact and actual stories from reality is that they possess an urgency that demands attention and discussion in a way that fiction, while great and it can go viral and prompt all kinds of amazing conversations and realizations as cat person or cat people did in The New Yorker, it's just, it's not, it's not the same. And when we're talking about modifying behaviors and really reexamining things like gender norms and sexual norms, I feel like you need to have the weight that reality brings with it. Um, which isn't to say that it's not a useful tool to talk about things in the abstract and in a fictionalized way, but I think you can't fully or even partially shed the reality piece of it. I also think there's just this, as this, as Connor mentions, you know, as this, as this continues, every new story, it now becomes about some particular detail that gets picked apart or, you know, uh, zoomed in on to such an extent 
that you lose sight of. Like maybe with the Aziz Ansari story, it was that philosophical question he's talking about where it's like, oh, does his private life, you know, does that outweigh whatever is being, you know, like should we be ignoring Blah because he's um, a public figure? Yes, right. And maybe that's just that's just a side effect of how many stories have been sort of coming out uh in with such frequency that rather than uh take everyone as as a new thing to uh examine as its own sort of story like we just we're like oh well the the detail here is this and we now now there needs to be an entire debate for a week about this kind of behavior i also wonder how many of the conversations that were prompted by cat person itself by that short story were not just as, as uncomfortable as some of the conversations about the real life events that kind of touch on that experience. Um, Saturday Night Live recently aired a kind of instantly viral <laughs> sketch about the difficulty of talking about the babe.net story about sure. mm-hmm. Aziz Ansari. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm sorry. We can talk about it's something else. I was just curious what everyone thought. But. No. No, no, of course. We can, uh, we can talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we should. We absolutely should. Well, let's come to this. I'll go first. Are you sure you want to do this? Yes, yes, I will speak on the topic of Aziz Ansari. I think... Careful. Yeah, I, I think that some... Women, careful, or or rather, um, uh, some men have a proclivity. Careful. Don't do it. (laughs) Stop. Do it. Honey, honey, honey. Um, And I think, uh, I can imagine many conversations like about cat person that went, essentially that exact same way. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I think there's a, a desire to think that, oh, it's it's easier to talk. I mean, I do think it is easier when you're not debating the sort of merits of stars having their personal lives splashed all over the internet and you're really focusing on the transgressions or non-transgressions of, of, of the moment. But like both cat people and the Aziz thing were really awkward, you know, Right. encounters to, mm-hmm. to unpack in part because there was uh, there was a gray area surrounding sure. or they were in the gray area. I kind of wonder what the possibility I feel like satire actually presents a huge amount of possibilities for talking both about real life and talking about fiction. I want to shout out a college humor sketch. So college humor, first of all, I'm a total I stand completely for college humor. They're great. <laughs> and they have this sketch. It's a few years old at this point, but it's a redo of the song Summer Lovin' from Greece that is <laughs> very much a it's a satire of rape culture. What? Whoa. What? Come on, Thunderbirds, what do I say? Oh, is that something that happens to you, Kaniki? Like they put up a fight? That is not cool. Guys, I was messing with you. Come on. <laughs> so much of the discomfort in these conversations is an unfamiliarity about talking about 
culture, about norms, about the environment that we're all embedded in, that we don't really have a way or a, a usual uh, mechanism for questioning. Those things that are just kind of like casually tossed off references that happen in conversation, that's the stuff. Mm-hmm. We can't talk about that stuff very easily. And satire kind of allows us to. <laughs> and I feel like, that's too, true. yeah, when you when you say stuff and norms and all that, I mean, part of it is just we're so bad about talking about sex in this culture. Yes. You know, we just we don't have good language for it. We sort of, you know, pop culture at the one on the one hand sort of glorifies it as like the ultimate thing about being human. And yet at the same time can only make jokes about it. You know, so it's right. this weird sort of, you know, adolescence, you know, that we have at sort of the level of, of the mass culture, I think. And that extra complicates things because, you know, it's these are both uncomfortable, but they're also about something that we're just really bad at talking about. Yeah. Our most consistent, ongoing, fictional series that touches on real-life matters is, in fact, Saturday Night Live. Hmm. Saturday Night Live is where, when it's in season, every Saturday, we're imagining the inner life of Donald Trump as constructed through the character of Alec Baldwin. Uh, David, as someone who spends a lot of time uh, thinking Too much about time, it, one might argue. Yes. <laughs> thinking about SNL itself and satire more broadly. Yeah. Um, what's the role of satire in this conversation? I think the role of satire is very important. I, I, when, I, when you think about um, the Baldwin-Trump character, what struck me about his introduction, uh, which was back uh, right, you know, I think it was maybe a couple months before the election. It was right, right in the thick of 2016. And you'd had Darrell Hammond playing the character because they couldn't really find a Trump. They were struggling with a Trump. And Darrell Hammond played Trump as this sort of like slightly sly kind of New York slick guy who would sort of give asides to the audience where he's like, huh, I don't know, you know, and <laughs> was more of like uh, like a huckster, I guess, or m- more of what maybe the perception of him is this real estate guy. The 1980s and 1990s Donald Trump. Right. right. And then when Baldwin emerged, he had such an aggressive energy and uh, he was playing him more monstrous. Like, And there was something immediately very impactful about it. I felt like, you know, impactful, should never use that word, but something, <laughs> uh, you know, kind of uh, frightening about him. And I think that has now... Begun to disintegrate. I think that um, now Baldwin plays him more in line with, I guess, what a lot of the you know sort of uh, stories of Trump's inner life in the White House is like, which is that I guess you know we, well, the most recent sketch was him in bed eating an egg McMuffin and like he <laughs> he's vain, I guess, or he doesn't know he doesn't really know what he's talking about. You know, more of more of like a, a sort of a fatuous softy again. Yeah, more malevolent but bumbling, and that is uh, automatically interesting to me. Even though I think uh, some of the edge is gone from Baldwin's impression, It's even that transition is interesting to me, that that's now maybe SNL's perception of Trump. And as you say, SNL is the, the biggest satirical reflection of current events. And I, I don't know if that's just a matter of Baldwin's performance changing or his take on the character changing or our take on the character changing. Yeah, I feel like it tracks with our national attitude to sure. where, well, at least liberal America's national like attitude towards this president, which was initially, oh, he's the huckster real estate tycoon. Sure. And then he's kind of a malevolent, you know, dictator. And now it's like a malevolent bumbler, perhaps. Sure. 
I, I don't know. What do you guys think? Oh, Megan, I'm particularly curious about whether you think I – mean, to the point about uh, <laughs> Batuasofty depiction of Donald Trump. <laughs> Batuasofty being my, my new rap name. Um, <laughs> um, particularly about that depiction of Donald Trump. Does satire actually make us – that is in one sense kind of speaking to the choir too potentially or – alternatively allowing us to poke fun at ourselves? Does it make it easier or harder to discuss things about which we disagree, like the president? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think it's a little of both, really. I think easier for all the ways we've been talking about, where you sort of put it into the realm of sort of ideas and you can you can analyze the joke rather than analyzing the president. And, you know, in this highly partisan age when, you know, so much is just about bickering, um, it can be nice to just have things kind of located on a purely ideological or ideas-based, I guess, um, plane. But at the same time, I do think it can lead sometimes to we can only talk about the ideas and we can sort of lose sight of the fact that, you know, this is a president who has a very specific set of policies that are, you know, rendering themselves in very real ways onto the American people. So I I feel like it's a balance of sort of finding the ways to talk about um, the things that need to be talked about, but also, you know, in a way that's not too theoretical and in a way that, you know, even though we're maybe using the lens of satire, we can sort of get back to the reality of the situation. And again, back to that word urgency and not forget the urgency of it all. I I do think that, you know, one of the things, one of the gifts that 2017 gave us was a lightly satirical movie that at the same time allowed a big chunk of America to sink into another big chunk of America's experience in a really rich way. Uh, And I'm talking, of course, about Get Out. Uh, Funny, scary, and real in a way that little else is. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, and get, David and I, before this we podcast started, we were talking about it as a, as an Oscar nomination, right? Which is like, I think, I, I wonder kind of whether get, get Out would be an Oscar contention if Donald Trump wasn't president, right? Hmm. I mean, and, and that gets to, I think, something about fiction is that it can be cathartic in a way. I mean, I definitely think SNL is a form of liberal catharsis, like, at the end of the week, after the hand-wringing and the indignation, and, and I'm not saying that those aren't necessarily well-founded emotions, but after that's over, here's a chance to laugh at the man that's made you so angry or stressed out during the week. And with Get Out, it's sort of like, here's a rejoinder to the Make America Great Again crowd. This is the sort of like woke movie of 2017, 2016. Now I can't even remember. 2017. Well, 2017. That's why it's nominated for an Oscar. (laughs) Hello, Alex Wagner. And at any rate, I mean, I just think you can't, there is an, there is the success of those two enterprises, both Get Out and SNL, I think cuts to sort of deeper reality that Americans find themselves living with and they search something out in fiction to deliver them from that in a way or to to respond to that. So I want to turn us to the way we always end Radio Atlantic with our keepers. What have you heard, watched, listened to, read, experienced, done recently that you do not want to forget? David Sims. How about we start oh, you're with starting you? with me. Okay. Right. Well, not to brag, but I saw Black Panther yesterday. <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> Speaking of a rejoinder Rude. to um, uh, like the white patriarchy. Rude. Uh, what it very rude of me to go see that movie <laughs> in my role as film writer for the Atlantic. <laughs> um, 
And it's not going to be a movie that's going to be hard to avoid, obviously. Uh, it's going to be everywhere in a couple of weeks, I think on the 16th. It's not going to be hard to avoid. It is, is going to be hard. Well, to avoid. right. Yes. Sorry. Thank you, Alex. What I loved about it the most, without spoiling anything, is its sense of world, which is so often missing from a comic book movie, uh, is it it's it gives us a lot of time in Wakanda, in T'Challa's, in Black Panther's kingdom, mm. secret African kingdom, that is not about setting up, you know, a villainous like plot point that needs to be resolved later or I don't know, like uh, dropping an infinity gem that's gonna Thor's gonna have to deal with in the next movie or what? Yeah, that is about giving us a very unique kind of a world that you might not have glimpsed in a big budget movie that I can really think of, and uh, I, I hope that that's what we talk about. You know, the 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 sort of investment in that kind of storytelling. When this movie comes out, I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot of things. Did you, did you, and in Wonder Woman, in, in Patty yes. Jenkins' version of it, there's time spent on the island which, of like f- women. And are it, these presented as kind of alternate universes where, you know, there's a like bit, right? a dominant black culture that r- runs things and same with a dominant female culture that runs things? Uh, for sure. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons Wonder Woman is so successful as well is, again, because there's, it's not 10 minutes, it's 50 minutes, you know, that there's, there's real time spent there. But uh, yeah, no, there's a philosophical question at the heart of here's this magical world, right? That yeah, th- uh, this this African kingdom that's technologically advanced and and you know very very uh, sort of uh, sort of ahead of the rest of the world in a lot of ways, and just sort of challenging like the audience with like, how would you feel if such a place existed, and w- would you be able to reconcile it with how the rest of the world works? Yeah, can't wait to see it. Alex Me either. Wagner. What is? I want to shrink myself down to mouse size and be up <laughs> in David Sims's pocket when he goes to these movie screenings. Is that creepy? I didn't mean yeah, it to it's sound fine. creepy. Just a little bit. You could I was thinking jokes. kind of like a Ratatouille sort of situation. Right. Oh. That's a, a great movie. <laughs> so great. Great movie about That's creativity. That's my keeper, Ratatouille. It's not my keeper. Um, <laughs> my keeper is, uh, I'm reading Joe Hagen's Sticky Fingers, which is a mm-hmm. great and delicious read about Yon, the life and times of Jan Wenner that was an authorized biography until it was decidedly unauthorized. Uh, and, um, it was deauthorized. <laughs> deauthorized. It's just great. You know, we live in times of turmoil right now, no doubt, but it's it's great to remember the sort of 70s counterculture moment and sort of how roiling youth culture was in those days. And think about that in contrast to today. I can't wait till someone, maybe Peter Morgan, makes a uh, miniseries based on John Winter's life. <laughs> Probably won't happen. Just throwing it out there to tie up the theme of this podcast. Awesome. America. <laughs> great Great, great job. Megan, what is your keeper? So speaking of the 70s, I recently binge-watched the entire second season of One Day at a Time. Have you guys watched the show on Netflix? Oh, yeah. Oh, so walk on through so good. to where the music's <laughs> playing. Oh. And yes, and I've just been loving this show. So the the reboot um, very much has the Norman Lear DNA in it. It's, you know, very sort of issues oriented. Um, This time around, it's a a Cuban-American family living in L.A. um, And they're just wonderful. Just, you know, top to bottom, the show is well written. It's well acted. Um, It has just, I I know this is cliche to say, but it has so much heart. Mm. Um, And to tie back to the idea of fiction and fact, um, one of the things that I just really love about this show is it's such a good 
presentation of ways to argue <laughs> in ways that are meaningful and that don't mm. feel gross. Mm. You know, every sitcom will have a conflict in the middle that's resolved by the end. Uh, but this one in particular finds ways to really emphasize that this is a family that loves each other so much and fundamentally respects each other so much that whatever disagreements they may have, and, and in a lot of cases, these are really big disagreements about how, you know, each character lives their lives. Um, but regardless of those, they will find ways to come back together at the end. And it just feels like a very good metaphor for America. Aww. One day I like at a it, time. Megan. It's One so good. day at a time. So I will close this out on Super Bowl Sunday. I joined many people in celebrating Janet Jackson Appreciation Day. Mm. I would like to specifically call out an epic Twitter thread from October 2017 that begins, quote, the youngest in her famous family, Janet Demita Joe Jackson, seemed predestined for stardom. This thread goes on for another 237 tweets. We will link to it in the show notes. It is easy to forget what a tremendous mark Janet made on the landscape of pop music. How many other living musicians were in the direct orbit of Michael Jackson, Prince, and Tupac Shakur. What? Basically every living pop diva has borrowed elements from Janet's sound and image, and I want to make the case for making Janet Jackson Appreciation Day an annual event. Yes. Every Super Bowl Sunday, I think we can proclaim it Janet Jackson Appreciation Day. So let it be written. So let it be done. My esteemed co-host has said it. It's a rule now. I think we're done here. (laughs) We're done here. (laughs) Thank you so much, Megan, (laughs) David. It is a pleasure. Thank you. An honor. Thanks, guys. Alex, as always, thank you. Matt, it's my pleasure and my honor (laughs) to be your esteemed colleague. I will talk with you next week. Once again, we've reached the end of Radio Atlantic. Make sure you tune in next week for a very special episode of the show. This episode was produced and edited by Kevin Townsend with production support from Diana Douglas and Kim Lau. Thanks as always to my co-host Alex Wagner, to David Sims and Megan Garber for joining us in studio, and to Connor Friedersdorf, Julie Beck, and Lenica Cruz for their contributions. Our theme song, The Battle Hymn, is by the frickin' inimitable John Batiste. Leave us a voicemail with your contact information, your thoughts on the episode, and or your lesson about fiction from real life at 202-266-7600. Check us out at facebook.com slash radio Atlantic and the Atlantic.com slash radio. Catch the show notes in the episode description. And if you like what you're hearing, rate and review us in Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. Most importantly, thank you for listening. Do not miss next week's episode. It is a doozy. We'll see you next week. <laughs>